Well, if you want to open your Bibles with me to Galatians chapter 2, that's where we're going to be this morning. It's a time of year where we think about the goals and some changes we want to make, and I believe that God has goals for the gospel and its effect in our lives as well. Galatians chapter 2, we'll be starting in verse 11. I think that the two main goals of the gospel, the first I think is obvious, it's that we would wise up to salvation, that we'd finally wise up to salvation. The goal of the gospel is to convert us, right? We are dead in our sins and trespasses, and, and we're, we're just monsters when it comes to our rebellion against God, and yet God has reached down and saved us by the, the death and resurrection of his son, and if we just believe in him, then we will be saved, and we need to wise up to that. We need to put our trust in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation, and many of us have, have done that. And I believe a second goal that God has for us for the gospel is that we would then rise up to transformation. It's not just, sweet, here's your get to heaven card, now act exactly as monstrous monstrous as you were before. No, we are to be conformed into the image of God's son. We're to allow him to mold and shape us. And so if I were to ask you, why is the gospel good news? You may say, well, for what it has done for me in the past, justification, When I put my trust in Jesus Christ and was converted and born again, that's why it's good news, and that's true. And we may say, for what it will do for me in the future, glorification, one day I'm not going to have this battle with my flesh anymore, and I'm going to receive a new body, and I'll be in heaven with my Savior forever, glorification. In the future, that's going to be great. But if you were to forget about sanctification today, then you'd be missing out on one of the major goals of the gospel. God wants to use the good news of of the sacrifice of his son to mold and shape us today. And so I think that there's a few different ways that the gospel should affect us. If you're taking notes today, there's four main categories we're going to be talking about. The first is that our conduct should be measured by the gospel. So how we judge ourselves and how we judge other people should be based on the truth of the gospel alone. Then we want to talk about how our conversation should be saturated with the gospel We can talk about so many different things. The most powerful and helpful thing we can talk about is the good news. And then we'll talk about how when we're confused, when there's confusion, it needs to be clarified by the gospel, by the gospel truth. And then lastly, we'll talk about how even our conscience needs to be transformed by the gospel. So those are the four categories we're going to be looking at today. In Galatians chapter 2, I'll just give you a bit of context. This is taking place about 300 miles north of Jerusalem. There's a great revival going on there to the point where news gets down to Jerusalem saying like, oh, is that your church plant? They're like, church plant? What are you talking about? And they had to start sending leaders up there to, to help out, but God was just doing something. Jews and Gentiles were getting saved, starting a church and, and mixing together, and they had no idea how politically incorrect they were being by loving each other so much. You believe in Jesus, I believe in Jesus. And they would eat meals together, which was something that just did not happen in Judaism because they had the same love for their God, and so they had this beautiful blended church. It's exactly what God wanted, right? Jesus died to unite Jew and Gentile into something new, his church. And so that's going on up in in Antioch. They're growing together, and we're going to see Paul relate the gospel to the situation that he comes across with Peter here and, and give us some ideas about how we can relate the gospel to daily living as well. So our first category we're going to look at is how, in verse 11, Christian conduct needs to be measured by the gospel. 
how we judge a situation should be based on the truth of Scripture, not necessarily our opinions. Galatians chapter 2, verse 11 says this. Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. And so Peter shows up because he hears this, this great news of of the, the, the salvation that's come to this area. And when he shows up, he sees a meal where there's Jews and Gentiles eating together. And it's a beautiful thing. And, and he knows this is a, a, something that's allowed within the gospel. And so he sits down and starts enjoying his time with them, celebrating who Christ is, and most importantly, having pork for the very first time in his life. He probably had his first Baconator on this day. And we know he enjoyed it because it was bacon. All right, it's implied, it's implied there in the original language, um, in, in the Greek there, that he loved his bacon, for goodness sake. So he is so happy, and he's just saying, oh, God, is so good. It's probably the first time he ever lifted his hands in worship, speaking in tongues, just couldn't be happier. The unity that he was experiencing between Jew and Gentile, it just felt right, right? Back in Jerusalem there, you know, it's good that you believed in Jesus, but we have a different way of doing things, and there was this separation going on, and all of a sudden, some, some Jewish believers from Jerusalem show up and they make eye contact with Peter and they begin to whisper among themselves and how did, I don't know how Peter handled it. He probably just excused himself to go to the bathroom to separate himself and when he came back, by the time he came back and people began to notice those pulling away from the Gentiles, it was more like an eighth grade dance with girls on one side and guys on the other and there's Jews on one side and Gentiles on the other and just imagine for a second how the Gentiles must have felt after thousands of years of this separation and this animosity, and now all of a sudden there was this union that they had, they probably began to feel like second-class citizens, like they weren't good enough. If they were only born Jewish, then they could have a full relationship with God. And what a terrible thing began to happen here. And there was this separation, and Peter was a believer, but he wasn't acting like one here. Peter knew the gospel, but he wasn't applying it to this situation, so his conduct was off. Paul knew that Peter knew better, right? I mean, think about when Peter was in Joppa and he had the vision of the sheet that was let down with all the unclean animals and Jesus says, rise, kill, and eat. Peter says, not so, Lord. I've never eaten anything unclean. And Jesus says, don't call anything unclean that God has cleansed. And it began to show him that not only were the dietary restrictions abolished, but immediately he went to the house of Cornelius and, and saw the Holy Spirit fall upon Gentiles and he recognized that Jew and Gentile were going to be both a part of the church. And so Peter knew better, and so Paul says he was to be blamed, right? Jesus died to unite these two groups. These were blood-bought Gentile believers that they were separating themselves from. And while Peter knew the gospel, I think he allowed fear to be the determiner of his choices rather than the truth of the gospel. I think we see three different ways in this passage about how Peter and Barnabas and the Jews were influenced um, in their conduct. And the first is in verse 12 where it says, certain men came, certain men. And so we see the first way that we can be influenced is by man's opinion. And it's, it's great that there are people in our lives that we respect and that we value their opinion, but we should never get to a point where when a person says something 
that we just take it without ever comparing it to the scriptures like the Bereans did. A person's opinion is only valid when it's connected to the truth of scripture. And so uh, sometimes we just have to realize that our hearts are wicked and that we've got different opinions. We've been raised in different ways and there are times where we're biased and we have opinions that are different than what the Bible says. And we try and cloak it in, in godly language, but we should, while we should have people that are mentoring us and pouring into us, the standard should be the good news of Jesus Christ, not just a person who's saying something because people are, can be wrong at different times. So certain men, men's opinion. And next we see what seems to be like maybe one of the first denominations uh, that, that came about. In verse 12 it says these people were of the circumcision. It's, it's like they wanted to be known by, that's like the worst denominational name ever that's to start with, but they said, you know, we are, we are different. We are Jewish believers. You know, you, you have to not only put your faith in Jesus Christ, but you need to be circumcised. You need to follow the law. You need to be Jewish in addition to um, just putting your trust in Jesus. And so they had a bent. They had a focus and emphasis uh, for this particular group. There's a lot of great denominations out there. I could rattle off a list and, and we would all know people from many different denominations that have a passionate love for Jesus. But isn't it true that almost every denomination has a little quirk, something weird where you're like, well, why do they focus so much on that? It's always Jesus, 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 and this unique thing. You're like, well, why is that being raised up as something really important that has to be a, a deal breaker kind of an issue? And it happens in many different churches, many different denominations, only as a denomination lines up with the scriptures does it have authority. And then lastly, in verse 13, it says, even the rest of the Jews played the hypocrite. And we see just full-on peer pressure. Everybody, not just Peter and Barnabas, but eventually even the rest of the Jews all separated themselves from the Gentiles, and they're just sitting there awkwardly trying to eat their meal, feeling horrible about themselves. And so there's this peer pressure. We need to all try and get our faith in Jesus to be so solid that even if people we love, even if our family, our church, and those that we love walk away and choose an ungodly way of life, that we would still continue to put our trust in the Lord. I would always challenge my youth group back in New Jersey. I would say, you have to, you have, to be, have such a personal relationship with Jesus grounded on the scriptures that even if I walk away from the Lord, that you would still say, well, I'm gonna follow the Lord. And you say, well, that's probably not gonna happen and that's not gonna happen in our church and that's a bit extreme, but it's happened in history. Think about the church in Germany during World War II. There was a corruption that happened in some of the denominations to the point where Dietrich Bonhoeffer had to be, become a martyr and they even started new denominations and had schisms and separations within the denominations because they realized how unpure it was to mix in the Nazi influence into what the church was doing. So it, it happened just 60, 70 years ago. It happened before that in America. Just think about the churches that were in support of slavery in America before the Civil War. I mean, we think, well, if I was back then, I wouldn't be in support of that. Well, that's a whole lot of peer pressure to hear something like that from the pulpit because of the economic gains that are, that are there. So yes, it could happen again, even, even in our country, that conduct and this pressure from people that we respect could motivate us in the wrong direction. So what does Paul say in 1 Thessalonians 2.12? He says, you walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. That's what we have to focus on. We have to focus on strengthening ourselves, strengthening our family, 
strengthening the small groups and the church body that we belong to and making sure that the influence is always bringing it back to the word of God. And so Paul knew, Peter knew better, and yet his conduct wasn't matching up to the truth and the freedom that was found in the gospel. So he began to try and influence Peter through his conversation. And that's the second category I want to look at that should be affected by the gospel. And it's Christian's conversation should be saturated with the gospel. Should be saturated with the gospel. Look at verse 14. Paul says, But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, and we'll look at exactly what he says, but Paul's response is going to have a clear gospel connection. He's not just going to have his opinion. He could have said an opinion. His opinion would have been right. If he just said, Peter, you're being mean. This guy's mother marinated that pork all night long because she, oh, it's Peter's first time having pork, you know. She spent all night cooking this thing. Look at her. She's crying. That's mean, Peter. Go give her a hug. Go sit back down and keep eating that pork. That would have been right. We've all eaten food that didn't taste good to love somebody else. Maybe even around this holiday season, you're like, no, really. This is the best chicken ever. I think I just hurt my mom's feelings a couple days ago. My wife made the best meal ever, and I was telling her, I was, I was like, you know, when I, met, when I met Shannon, I told her, just don't cook me chicken. I don't like chicken. And then she cooked me chicken one day, and I was like, I love chicken. Oh, I don't like my mom's chicken. <laughs> List of things never to say to your mother. I learned that. We're always learning and growing. And I learned that. It's not a nice thing to, to say. So you guys have probably done that too. The, the opinion would have been right. But there's not as much power in opinion as there is in Scripture. So we see Paul using the gospel instead. There's a problem, and the gospel truth provided the solution. That's the basic process that we should all go through daily as we encounter a situation, connect it to the truth of the gospel. Our words can be so powerful. You know, the Proverbs tells us that our words can be full of life or death. That's what they can bring. We've all been on the receiving end of that where we've felt dead and received life or we've felt great and somebody brought us down to death because of their hurtful words and we've been on the delivering end of that as well. Words can be very powerful. Paul tells us that we can use our words for a much nobler way. In Ephesians 4.29, he says, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth but what is good for necessary edification that it may impart grace to the hearers. Imagine if that was our filter. Is this necessary for edification? Am I going to be a part of imparting God's grace to people by my words? What a noble thing that we could do. What a privilege to be a part of, to recognize that at the end of a conversation, somebody could walk away praising God and thanking God for sending a messenger of encouragement to them, and they can connect our words to grace, to feeling empowered by God himself. That's the the way that we can use our mouth. And We just might not feel comfortable doing that just because we haven't done it a lot, you know, just because sometimes it's uncomfortable and you just got to do it. You just got to start learning how to use your words to impart grace to people. And it'll be awkward the first couple times, right? You'll be be having a bite of banana and saying, "Mm, this tastes good. Have you ever tasted and seen the Lord is good? You're like, what? What are you saying? What? What kind of segue was that? Or you're just going to be talking to someone, yeah, the sports are great. Yeah, LeBron James is, what did you read in your Bible this morning? Where did that come from, right? It's a bit awkward, the delivery, and there's just not natural. But it doesn't mean you give up. Just because it's awkward doesn't mean you give up, right? You've got to keep working on it. It's like lifting weights. Now, you're going to realize pretty quickly that this is a hypothetical thing that I'm telling you. I've read in books 
that when you lift weights, um, it's awkward the first time. The next, it's just uncomfortable. You probably look ridiculous when you're doing it. The next day, you hurt. And if you woke up the next day and you said, my arms hurt, you know what, forget this. Why would I do something that makes my arms hurt? Then you'll end up looking like me. You can make that choice. You can choose to look like me and not lift weights or anything. But if you push through, then eventually you begin to flex that muscle more and it becomes a bit more natural and there's growth in that area. That has to happen for us as well. That's hard. I'm, I'm preaching to myself here. I look in the mirror. I just recently I started trying to do a better job of this. I grew up in New Jersey, okay? In New Jersey, when you get into an elevator with someone else, you don't talk to them. Unless you're planning on mugging them, why would you talk to them? It doesn't make any sense. You're standing next to somebody, granted, made in God's image, right, that might be going through a rough time, but you just stare at the wall. I remember visiting the South and Texas at times, and I get in an elevator, well, howdy, and you're like, what? You put your back against the wall, and you're like, oh, no, he's got a gun, too. You're like, you know, there's a camera in here, so I'm just saying, hi, partner, yeah, okay, go on. You were going to get off the same floor, but now you just go to the basement or something and just stay in the... Stay. That is, I tried in an elevator. I'm like, what's the point? It's only 10 seconds. I'm like, well, the point is the gospel. So I tried recently. I was like, hello, human. You seem also to have two legs and two arms like I do. I love Jesus. I'm like, oh, this is so awkward, but I got to try. You got to keep trying, and eventually you can impart grace to, to the hearers, like Paul says we should. Look at how... Look at how Paul connects this situation to the truth of the gospel more than anything else. In verse 14, we see how he's going to say the gospel is universal. It still applies, Peter, even to you. It says in verse 14, if you being a Jew live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? We who are Jews by nature are not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law for by the works of the law no flesh shall be justified. He tells Peter, you're not walking in step with the gospel. You were Jewish and you had to leave the law. You had to recognize that it's by faith in Jesus that you're putting your, you know, you're putting your trust in that is going to have your salvation, not by, not by the works. So if it didn't work for you, why are you now binding this burden upon the Gentiles? You know, you, you call yourself a Christ follower. It was in Antioch where this mixture was happening that people were first called Christians, Christ followers, just to show you something different was happening there where people recognized and connected it directly to Christ. And yet Peter and these others come and try and break all that up. But even them, they grew up Jewish and it was when they put their faith in Jesus that everything changed. Just think about Peter before and after his salvation in Christ. Before his salvation in Christ, in his flesh, even with the best motives, he looks at Jesus and says, I will not deny you. And Jesus says, even before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. And he's convinced. Peter's convinced in his flesh, I will not deny you. And yet he denies Christ three times and weeps bitterly because of it. And then Christ breathes the Holy Spirit upon him. He receives the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And what happens? He walks outside and preaches and 3,000 people get saved. That kind of stuff just wasn't happening with Peter before he had the Holy Spirit. It was his faith in Jesus and becoming born again that brought about that fruit. And yet he's trying to put this burden of the law back on the Gentiles. It doesn't make sense, Paul's saying. His conduct shouldn't be focused on that. 
And so we see Paul using his conversation to help Peter repent is, is what the goal of it is. And that's how a good gospel conversation, it's one of the things it can do. It can help people repent. And as you show them that their action isn't in truth with the gospel, the hope is, hey, this is my opinion. This is what Jesus says about this situation, that they would do an about face and, and have their life be in step with the gospel. Repentance, but also they could prevent You can be a part of preventing sin altogether. If we're a community of people who speak the gospel to each other and we're saturating our conversations in the scriptures and we're living that abundant life of fellowship, abiding in the vine, then you better believe that we're going to be preventing some sin because we're going to be healthy spiritually. We're going to have accountability, transparency, love, bearing each other's burdens, and it'll prevent sin from even happening. Romans chapter one, Paul says this, I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift so that you may be established. That's what we can do is you join one of the growth groups here and you're meeting and you're sharing your life with somebody else. You're helping to establish somebody else's life. You're imparting spiritual gifts to them instead of them maybe having in their weakness always giving in to the lies of the enemy, always falling into that that trap and deceit of sin. Instead, you're helping to establish them and walk through life with them. And Paul goes on to say that it is actually that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. It's just all of us helping out each other. Right? It's, you better believe if anybody in the congregation comes up to a pastor and says, I just, I see an inconsistency in your life and I wanted to kind of know your heart about what's going on, that a, that a pastor's going to receive that and say, you're right, or here's actually what's going on. And there's a mutual faith and a mutual establishing that happens as we live life together and as we abide in the vine. So, so Paul here is going to, he's trying to help Peter repent of this, but we see here in verse 17 He's going to give us a wrong idea and a right idea. The wrong idea is that the gospel is just for conversion. The right idea is that it's for daily living. Let's look at the wrong idea in verse 17. But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I through the law died to the law that I might live to God. This is a confusing portion of Scripture, but what Paul's trying to say is basically what was an accusation against him, that if you keep on preaching so much grace, Paul, then people are just going to take that grace and then live these sinful lives and use their liberty just to sin all over the place, and it's not, they need to have the law there as their boundary. Paul says, well, that's actually not what happens when people experience grace and forgiveness and mercy. When it says here that is Christ a minister of sin, people are accusing Paul of saying, you're telling people to leave the law, to leave God's law that's been around for thousands of years and to just put their faith in Jesus and they don't need the law anymore. And that puts them in the category of sinners, the accusation was. And the reason was is the Jews felt like, hey, we've got God's expectations. We have God's law. So we know how to honor God And so we are the ones that are not sinners because we know how to honor God. By default, then everybody who doesn't have the law is a sinner. So they'd look at their little group of, 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 you know, their, their cities and they'd say, we are the righteous ones. Everyone else doesn't have the law. And so they're in the category of sinners. Well, what happens when you leave as a Jew who believes in Jesus? What happens when you leave the category of the law to put your faith in Jesus Christ? 
You just left the law where they said that the non-sinners were and you put yourself in the category of sinners because you left the law. Well, that's exactly what we are to do is to recognize that we cannot save ourselves and that there's nothing that we can do uh, for our own salvation. We just have to have faith in Jesus Christ. The real sin, Paul says, the real transgression is if I build again those things which were destroyed in verse 18. If I go back to the law, having now experienced Christ by faith, and I think I need to add to it again the law, that's the real sin, not, not leaving the law for Christ. So the wrong idea is the gospel is just for conversion. The right idea in verse 20 is the gospel is for daily living. Paul goes on to say, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I think this verse is what encapsulates the idea I'm trying to talk about this morning more than any other one, which is the gospel is for daily living. You know, we're encouraged here about the victory we already have, that we have been crucified with Christ. The old man nailed to the cross. The old Andy is, is, you know, been beaten down been hurt so bad and one day when I'm glorified will be completely destroyed for now the struggle is left so I can continue to put my faith in Christ and choose him now there are times where the stronghold of the old Andy drinks in that monster energy drink and just roar, just comes out as a monster and I'm like what did I just do why did I say that why did I why was I so weak in that situation and the flesh kind of manifests itself but I need to recognize that it's been crucified with Christ Christ lives in me now I need to be thinking about that. This phrase in verse 20, the life which I now live, is a really long way of saying today. Today, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul's saying today, I'm focusing on what Christ has done for me in the past. I'm focusing on Jesus who loves me but also gave himself for me, the sacrifice that he made. He's saying I'm focusing on the gospel today. And, and as we do that, we naturally begin to love God more. That's all we got to do is just have a few moments where we think about Jesus and his sacrifice for us and we put that per, into perspective into our, our temptations and the situations we're in and it helps us to understand. There's no illustration that helps us understand this perfectly. You know, people have tried to give illustrations and just, there's just no perfect one. You walk out to your garbage can and you waited a bit long. We didn't listen to the wife and it's just been a bit long and you lift it up and there's just maggots down there, just filthy maggots crawling around. And as you're like, oh, you're disgusted. And then you kind of look at one of them, looks like they're whimpering a little bit and just being picked on. You know what? God, I want to become a maggot and die for these maggots so that they can be a part of your kingdom. And you're like, yeah, just like Jesus. Nope still exponentially different. We are exponentially different than than that kind of a distance. The condescension of Jesus leaving paradise to come. I mean, think about it. He was in a womb for nine months. This is Jesus, just nine months. Like that's for nine months. Jesus stubbed his toe. It's not in the Bible, but it must have happened. Right? With sandals. At some point, Jesus stubbed his toe. God stubbed his toe because he loves you so much. It's amazing. And then he would come and die for us. It's unbelievable. When we preach the gospel to ourselves, we grow in love for God. Paul tells us this clearly in 2 Corinthians 5.14. He says, for the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died and he died for all. 
that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. It's the love of Christ that compels us as we think about the truth of the gospel. So how does the gospel practically help believers today? Well, there was a student at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School um, named Jared Compton that helped me to understand this. So his name is Jared Compton. So you could say he was straight out of seminary, okay? Um, and he, he wrote some good articles on this that helped me to, to understand it. Let's just look at three different categories about how thinking about the gospel more will help us in our daily living. Well, let's suppose you struggle with anger. You're like, I don't struggle with anger because I'm only ever ang- angry in a righteous way. Come on. Think about it. Even King David, we can see different times in his life where he had a righteous anger and a regular anger. Regular anger, anger is when he sends his boys to go get some food from Nabal. And they're like, Nabal said he's not giving you any food because you're a bum. And he's like, saddle up, boys. Get your swords. We're going to kill him and his whole family. That's regular anger. Regular anger is when, like, that was David handling it in a bad way. Thankfully, Abigail stopped him. Regular ang- anger handled in a good way is, like, when Absalom came and stole the throne and David's taken off, and right across the creek, Shimei is sitting there throwing rocks at David's head. And it, one of the mighty men comes up and says, do you want me to go cut his head off? David's like, no. If God told him to curse me, let him curse me. My own son wants my life. Of course, this, this, you know, this guy from Saul wants my life as well. Maybe the Lord will see, and if I am really innocent, the Lord will judge him. That's a good way to hang, handle regular anger is trusting it to the Lord instead of being, you know, I'm going to go kill Nabal. We usually try and go kill Nabal when people offend us and cut us off when we're driving and stuff, right? Righteous anger is when David showed up and Goliath is cursing God's name. And he's blaspheming God's name and something boiled up in David and he says, I will kill this man. No one talks about God that way. That's a righteous anger. Righteous anger is when we're, we're helping out the orphans and those that can't help themselves. That's a righteous anger. Let's say we struggle with anger. Um, if I convince you that we have some categories of regular anger. Well, the gospel tells you that in spite of what your flesh and the devil is screaming out at you, you actually have the resources to outlast any temptation to lose your cool. You have those resources now being born again. The Spirit of God is living inside of you. And despite the satisfaction that Satan promises for an angry outburst or a well-placed fist, these are shallow moments of satisfaction compared to the lasting joy that comes from a righteous, creator-honoring behavior. Not the least to think about the smile that that Jesus is going to have, recognizing, like, that's exactly how I responded when they were putting a bag over my head and punching me and spitting on me, and I just kept on saying, all right, Father, I commit myself to you, and And it also reminds us just how much Jesus paid to give us the power not to blow our top. It was his own death on the cross that gave us his power. And when we think about these things, it helps put put it in perspective. The gospel shows us we are citizens of heaven. And so, yeah, earthly people are probably going to mess around with us at times. But we know our destination is heaven. So can we let something go because we're headed to such a great destination? Just kind of picture how you felt on your, on your wedding day. You're driving to your wedding. You're all exciting, and somebody cuts you off and flips you the bird. Why? You know, and, and you just you want to let them have it. You want to speed up and tailgate them you know, and, and just get right on them. You know, and then you realize, I'm getting married today. It's okay, buddy. <laughs> Ever, you know the destination for you is Aruba. You're going on a honeymoon. This guy can have his miserable little day because you know your destination. Well, the gospel reminds us of an eternal perspective that we are heading to heaven. 
and some grumpy little unbelievers and sometimes some believers that are having a bad day are going to have a rough time. But you know what? I don't have to have an angry outburst back at them just because they brought that to me. How else does the gospel help us? Well, let's suppose you struggle with lust. The gospel tells us that in spite of what your devil-charged flesh says, you don't have to give an inch to the giant of lust, no matter how much he taunts or pushes you. The gospel actually unclothes the temptress, leaving a wrinkled, warty, cynical, bitter old witch in her place. You're like, why was I attracted to that monster, that dripping faucet? And then not to leave the men out, the gospel unclothes the tempter, leaving a bloated gut, womanizing, abusive, selfish troll in his place. You're like, what did I ever see in that guy? Why would I ever be deceived into that kind of lust? The gospel topples the idol of lust and, and shows us that nothing truly joyful can be found there, only a cruel taskmaster, a slave master who de- desperately wants his property back. And the gospel reminds you that Jesus died so you don't have to be fooled by the deceit of lust anymore. It costs Jesus his life. Well, what about the uh, condemnation? We all experience that, right? When, when we just start feeling unworthy completely. And it's different than conviction. Conviction is, is great. That's healthy, right? Conviction causes you to recognize sin and you make changes and you head back to the Lord and, and you receive that forgiveness from him. That's different. Conviction is healthy. Condemnation is when the enemy pours such thoughts in your mind that you, you think, I can't even pray anymore. That's what happened to me in college when I began to walk away from the Lord. The enemy, began, I would still go, I'd be out partying the whole night and I'd come home and pray. And the enemy is like, are you serious, you hypocrite? And he was right. He's like, you're going to pray? You're going to talk to God, but you know tomorrow night you've already said yes to going to that party. But you're going to talk to God right now. You think he hears your prayer. I'm like, you're right. I should never pray again. I stopped praying for the first time in my life, you know, because he was right. I was a hypocrite. He was throwing that, throwing that in my face, and eventually I stopped going to church, and it was miserable. Every thought of condemnation always, 100% of the time, comes from the devil. It has never, there's never been a thought of condemnation that has come from God the Father, Jesus, or the Holy Spirit. Not at all. We see how Jesus deals with those that are condemned in John chapter 8 when the woman caught in adultery was treated so graciously and so mercifully. We see how God treats those that are condemned. In Zechariah, we see a a situation where Joshua the high priest is brought before God by Satan the accuser and Joshua's garments are filthy. And he didn't say they weren't filthy. He's like, yeah, they are filthy. And Satan begins to point at him and accuse him and look at his sin, look at his sin. And the father just looks at Satan and and changes the clothes of Joshua and takes off his filthy clothes and puts on a righteous robe, a righteous turban on top of him. And then Satan just has nothing to say. There's nothing to point at anymore. And he just walks away probably thinking, this is unfair. This is unfair that you would give him such righteousness despite his sin. God takes our sins and throws it as far as the east is from the west, buries it in the deepest sea. Thoughts of condemnation never come from God conviction that brings you towards the Lord and his forgiveness comes from him but never condemnation and the gospel shows us that Jesus took away this death sentence and made an end to all of our sin well this next category is Christian confusion we just don't know how to respond in a certain situation Christian confusion can be clarified by the gospel look at chapter uh, 2 verse 21 here Paul says, I do not set aside the grace of the gospel, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. 
O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? He says, something's wrong with you, Peter. Are you kidding me? You're an apostle, apostle you know? What, what are you thinking right now? You know, all you Galatians, Christ was clearly portrayed among you as cr- crucified. There's like a giant billboard explaining the gospel to you, he says. It couldn't be clear, and now you're acting like the gospel only applies to your salvation, but not to your social life, but not to how you do church. You're acting like there's a spell cast on you. And Christians do that sometimes, too, where a certain situation comes up, whether it's political or in the news or something, and our first thoughts are as an American rather than as a Christian. Come on, we're all guilty of that. We are. We start thinking, well, as an American, illegal immigration is wrong. It's illegal. Goodness, just enforce the laws. We're right. We're right. But why does that sometimes become the driving force of our conversations and our thoughts and our obsessions? It happens to me. It happened to me last year when all of a sudden Murrieta was in the national news. When was the last time you thought you'd go on the news websites and see Murrieta? You're like, well, our little town, our little town is famous for being a great town. Murrieta and Temecula. I remember the first time I looked up this area three years ago when I moved, it was like Murrieta and Temecula are the third and fourth most desirable cities to raise a family in, in America. Not in like California or in Riverside, in America. So that's like, we're not, we, we take pride in that, and that's great. We want to put our families in a safe situation. But my first thoughts when all of a sudden there was these secret buses and stuff coming was, well, this is unsafe. And, and I was purely, I started to make an idol out of my family's safety. Now, I have a God-given responsibility to keep my family safe, and I'm going to do that. And I can vote like that, but I was missing any chance at all to minister to those that weren't gang members and those that weren't, even if they had infectious diseases, goodness, why, why do I go to Haiti and hug an orphan kid at the, at the risk of getting cholera, but not if somebody comes to my hometown, then it's, then it's completely off limits. It's idolatry. I found that. Thank God, God stapled my mouth shut for three days until I figured some of this stuff out. There were some pastors that were doing great right from the get-go, helping people to sort through and saying, the gospel says this, and this might be a gospel opportunity and as an American, yeah, we can keep pushing for legal things that can be done. And I was like, oh, it took me days to figure it out. And then I opened my mouth out and it sounded so holy after, after in my head thinking all these different, different thoughts. My wife knows what I was thinking in the beginning. There's a Christian confusion when it comes to the gospel, a Christian confusion. And, and we act like there's a spell cast on us that we think we're beyond the gospel and it doesn't apply to every situation? Do we so understand the gospel that every act we carry out is based on the gospel of grace? We have to ask ourselves that. Are we gracious to others in the way we speak before them and behind their backs because we've mastered the gospel? Do we believe the gospel so much that our daily thoughts are constantly full of the joy of our salvation? Are we distracted with such other pain in life? Do we believe the gospel so much that that we can move beyond it to better and wiser things that we can focus on and leave the gospel behind? Do we really believe that every person we're talking to in the church, in our family, and in our neighborhoods has believed the gospel unto salvation so we don't have to talk about it right now? We can talk about other things because that major, most important issue in life has been settled. I I think we haven't moved beyond the gospel is what these questions are telling us. You know, sometimes we think, oh, the gospel's milk and I want the meat. That's just not the best analogy to kind of think about. The gospel's not milk in the sense of infant formula. We're like, that'd be creepy 
to drink that as an adult. That's just kind of weird. Now, it's like milk like in your Cheerios. You're like, I will never outgrow this. This is awesome. The gospel is always nourishing. Yeah, and you can always go deeper with the Lord, but isn't it true that when we forget about the simplicity of our faith and our simple relationship with the Lord that, that we get into trouble? We can never lose those things that are so important. So when there's confusion about how we're handling a certain situation, we need the gospel to clarify those things. The last category we'll look at is that even our Christian conscience needs to be changed by the gospel. In chapter 3, verse 2, Paul says this, This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish having begun in the Spirit? Are you now being made perfect by the flesh? He's asking them some piercing questions to separate out. Did, did everything change for you when you just continued doing the law a little bit better? Or was it when you abandoned the law for faith in Jesus Christ? You know, and he asked these piercing questions about when did the miracles start? When did the Holy Spirit indwell you? When, did, when were you eternally secure? It was by faith. It was because of the gospel message. We weren't initially converted by rules nor attracted to this faith by rules but by, by Jesus alone. Paul says it great in Romans 1. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. That verse that captivated Paul and was a game changer for him and captivated Martin Luther and was a game changer for all of us. It's, it's said really well about how, the, how faith and the gospel should be a part of our daily lives and even in other translations. In the NIV, it says, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Or in the NLT, it says, or it is accomplished from start to finish by faith. You can never live leaving a life of faith for anything else not for experience or anything. You know, Spurgeon, before he would get up and preach, would say to himself, I believe in the Holy Spirit. God forbid he would rely on his own experience being dubbed the prince of preachers and not the Lord himself. We live our lives by faith. And living a life by faith, focusing on the gospel, it's just gonna remind us to live our lives sacrificially. Paul went on to tell the Romans in Romans 12, I beg you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. My goodness, we get so ridiculous sometimes, me included, right? When we start weighing out our lives, and we say, I don't know, can I really keep tithing? I didn't get that raise this year. Can I, really, can I really give to God? I don't know. Can I really give up this time to serve the Lord? I don't know. Can I really give up this comfort and go live in that country or go share my faith over here? And we weigh it out. And then all of a sudden as we weigh it out properly, we recognize, wow, it is reasonable for me to live my life radically for the Lord. It's just reasonable when we look at what's unfair is what had to happen to Jesus. Not, there's nothing in our life that's unfair when we put our Christ in Jesus. It's all benefits. Paul says, don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. There's got to be a change in our conscience. The way we even think, it's just got to change if we're confused about things. And so if the engine of the Christian experience is the good news, then we need to preach this good news to ourselves daily. Martin Luther said it real simply. He says, we need to hear the gospel every day because we forget it every day. It's true. We, we do forget it every day. So we need to fuel this practice with all the means of grace at our disposal. Bible reading personally, 
January is a great time to kind of look at how your Bible reading is going and recognizing the simple fact that four chapters a day, which is well less than a half hour a day, will get you through the entire Bible in a year. And one chapter a day will get you through the entire New Testament in a year with a hundred mess-up days. A hundred days you could say, oh, I forgot to read the Bible today, and then go to sleep. A hundred days and you could say, I read the New Testament in 2016. And you'll feel pretty cool about yourself. It'll be pretty, it's a good goal to, to do that. Maybe you've ever even read the New Testament. It's six minutes a day for a year and a hundred days to make mistakes. And you got this. You're like, that is my kind of goal. I think I can do that, right? Bible reading, personal prayer, corporate worship like we're doing now. Gospel-centered Christian music is available in this area. And fellowship, the growth groups, you know, small groups. We need to preach the gospel and establish each other in our mutual faith if we're going to make it. If the gospel's got to affect our conduct, our conversations, clarify our confusion, and change our conscience if we're going to be effective and have that abundant life. I don't know about you, but I don't just wake up like this. this is, I, don't, I don't wake up thinking about the gospel. I don't wake up going, hallelujah. You know, that, that happened once. In 34 years, it happened once where I woke up and I was like, God is so good. And I was all amped up and excited. I'm like, I'm a Christian. Today is going to be a good day. I woke up in the spirit. This is awesome. Like I woke up and I was already clothed in Christ. Like, That's right. I'm a Christian, right? But usually I wake up grumpy, hungry, and I offend my wife within the first 10 minutes somehow. And I realize by that time, and I'm like, I need to read the Bible. I'm like, sweetie, can I just take a few minutes? I'm sorry. Can I, I should have got up earlier. Can I just take a few minutes and read the Bible? And she's like, please, please do that. Like just last week, she goes, it's like 8 o'clock. We've already had breakfast. She goes, I'd like you to go to, to a coffee shop and just read the Bible. I'm, oh, she is the most supportive, best wife. That is great. And then I'm at the coffee shop. I'm like, wait a second. It's because I've had a bad attitude. That's why she's just trying to fix me. She's like, only Jesus can help him. You need to go spend some time with the one that can cleanse your soul. I was like, oh, it's still nice of her, right? But this is how we live an abundant life. It's by saturating our life with the gospel. We, we can live the barely saved life. You know, where it's like, okay, you get to go to heaven and nothing changes. You can live the barely saved life, but don't you want to live the abundant life? The barely saved life is when you become an object lesson in heaven. You get to heaven and everyone's like, <laughs> and they start praising God. They're like, I had no idea God was this merciful. Unbelievable. Welcome. I don't even know if we have a mansion ready for you. This is great. I had no idea you were a believer. Uh, and then Jesus is like, hold on. And like weeks, he's sitting there chipping away. And he goes, all right, there. Now you'll fit in a bit. You know, and it's like, don't make it that hard on God. When you get to heaven, wouldn't you rather the testimony instead to be, as people are talking with you, they're like, you're just so encouraging. I remember how encouraging you were on earth. You're the same way. That'd be a pretty sweet testimony to be like a Barnabas, you know. If we allow ourselves to think about the gospel and apply it to our sanctification now, then it's, it's not going to be such a drastic thing. Now, now we're worlds away from what we're going to be like when God fully, fully glorifies us. Yeah, right? And that's going to be what he does, but he wants to partner with us now in sanctification. Let him do it, right? Let's, let's let him do it. This is a great time of year to say, you know what? Christian disciplines isn't the same thing as legalism. If you, if you only feel like God loves you or loves you more because you've read your Bible or done an hour prayer time or done some things like that, that's legalism. That's confusion. That's wrong. But if you just recognize it's wise 
to get myself into the scriptures, to memorize scriptures, you know, to set some consistent times of prayer. That's just wise, and I want to put myself under that fountain of blessing, and it has nothing to do with your salvation or, you know, judging how much God loves you. That's just wisdom. There's no legalism in that at all. Don't hide behind the excuse of legalism for that, right? Let's do a good reset right now and ask the Lord what he wants to do in our lives. And whatever that reset is, the gospel's got to be a part of it. They're going to put up a slide right now with just a little short link that you can write down that'll have the notes for the, you know, for the sermon today, but it'll also, at the end of it, it'll have five questions that you can ask yourself to kind of really think through and meditate on how you can be a doer of the word as far as incorporating the gospel into your life. You can ask these questions with your family or in your growth groups just to kind of keep that momentum going after the service.